Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Sam Atea, who's the CEO of Western Magnesium. They're a TSX-listed company hoping to move onto the NYSE at some point, as they see the US as their key market. They have got some intellectual property, which they think is a greener solution, which also delivers at scale and at a competitive price. Their next move is to fund a pilot plant and then move into commercialization. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Sam, how are you doing, sir? Good, not too bad. How are you? Not too bad either. Not too bad. Cr- cracking through the week. Looking forward to a glass of wine tonight. So what about you? You're, where, where are you in the world? I am currently in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, in our beautiful office here downtown. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, sunny day. And I am landlocked at the moment. Obviously, we can't travel because of COVID. Uh, but it's a great place to be landlocked and working with the operational team here uh, at Western Magnesium. So it's been it's been good. I miss the traveling and getting in front of people and obviously our different uh, groups that we're working with. But ultimately, I'm happy to have spent this time with the team and uh, and uh, develop new ideas and new strategies for the business. Good, good, good. Productive times. Who thought we'd ever miss getting on an airplane? Um, so, I know. talking of Western uh, magne- Magnesium, could you give us a one-minute overview of the business and then we'll pick it up from there? Sure, absolutely. Well, to start with, my name is Sam Mattia and I'm the president and CEO of Western Magnesium Corporation. And Western Magnesium Corporation is focused very much on bringing back the production of magnesium metal back into the United States specifically for U.S. uh, big industry like auto, aerospace, uh, airline, um, environmental technology, government and military. And so we've spent the last nine years developing a new technology for the production of magnesium metal that focuses very much on green technology, uh, meaning that our plant will be close to zero waste and zero toxicity. And we plan to, we are currently in the process of building our pilot plant. And from that data and analytics, we'll be moving forward to building the big commercialized plant and hope to be fully operational uh, with the commercialized plant by about 2026, 2027, producing magnesium metal. Fantastic. Thanks for that summary. Good summary. Um, Can I just start off, though, by trying to understand what your business plan is? So, you know, when did this journey start and what did you set out to do? Was this the plan day one? Have things changed? Have you spotted new opportunities? Well, things are always changing. Obviously, when you're developing a new technology that has never been developed before, you're constantly reinventing the wheel as you go along. So you try to stick to a main plan and you try to stick to a methodology that you believe is working. And However, opportunities come up. There's a long period of of development, uh, research and development. So things are going to come up that constantly change. The trick is to uh, understand what is workable, what can we implement today with our technology, and what will be a future implementation for efficiencies. That's always the trick, of course. But to give you a 50,000-foot view and where things have, have started for us, nine years ago, the chairman of the company gathered a group of scientists and engineers that were subject matter experts in the production of magnesium metal. There are not many left 
uh, in the world who are subject matter experts, and we can touch that uh, on that a little bit later on. But he gathered these scientists and, and for the purposes of bringing back the production of magnesium metal into North America, specifically the U.S., where there's an extremely high demand with different industries, such as the auto aerospace airline, as I'd mentioned before. And so in, in bringing back these scientists nine, or gathering these scientists nine years ago, they really had to prove uh, three things. Number one, uh, were they gonna become uh, price competitive with the largest producer of magnesium in the world today, which is China? Number two, is the technology scalable? Ours is, and currently to, when you want to build a magnesium plant, you either build a big one or you don't build it at all. And so scalability has not been part of any technology out there currently that is being used around the world. And finally, the plant to meet EPA regulatory environment that we're in today had to be close to zero waste and zero toxicity. And that's what they set out to do nine years ago. Two years ago, two and a half years ago, they proved concept. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've gone from phase one and R&D uh, into production mode and entering into phase two. Okay, so, so tell me that, it's a few interesting things you said there. Um, with, with regards to you know being price competitive and, and, and scalable, I, I, I get that. You know, I guess everyone would, would want that almost irrespective of the, the, the mm -hmm. commodity. Um, and we will come on to the green component, but what problem were you trying to solve? What, what is this uh, focus on the US about? Was there, a, was there a demand from the US because they felt that they didn't want the reliance on China because there's all this wave of nationalism down there? I mean, what was the opportunity you spotted nine years ago? Absolutely. Well, there, were, there are three parts to your question, and I'm going to answer them uh, starting with the idea that um, why is magnesium become so popular all of a sudden? Why is everybody looking at magnesium? And it's a lightweight material that is 75% lighter than steel. It's 60% lighter than titanium, 33% lighter than aluminum. And looking at what they saw nine years ago was that the environmental regulatory agencies, not only in the United States, but around the world, were moving towards stricter, stricter environmental practices. And therefore, we knew that lightweight materials were going to be needed in the construction of vehicles, airplanes, rocket ships, military equipment. And that was something that they saw nine years ago. So the material is in high demand. Problem number two is that in 1995, the Chinese came into the United States selling magnesium and they decimated the U.S. magnesium industry. In fact, by about 1997, 6,000 casting companies had shut their doors and that killed any new plants being developed in the United States. More importantly, there's not a lot of research and development that went into new technologies in regards to the production of magnesium. So the Chinese had a chokehold on the industry. <clears throat> what was interesting was that you would think that the Chinese or the big producers would flood the market in the US to <clears throat> have, that, have magnesium 
in infused in all these products, but in fact, the opposite happened. There's only 1 million metric tons of metal being produced every year. 85% of that comes from China. And primarily it's used for things like your cell phone, mag wheels, bicycles. And the problem big industry in the US has is that they need a continuous supply. And in the world today, if you really want to buy magnesium metal, it's it's really, you can only buy it once a year, spot pricing. There's not a continuous supply where US industry, and let's take an example, the auto industry, they're not going to retool their assembly line if they can't count on continuous metal coming in for to infuse within, within their cars. So the Chinese had a real good chokehold on the industry and, and, and US industries could not rely on the magnesium that was out there. So that was problem number two. Problem number three, EPA regulatory environment, getting stricter and stricter, especially in the United States. The process of producing magnesium metal is toxic. In some cases, it's really toxic. In others, it's somewhat toxic, but still toxic enough not for the EPA to say, no, we don't want any magnesium plants built in the United States. In fact, there's only one operating plant in the United States today, that's US magnesium. It produces between 40 and 50,000 metric tons. The process is somewhat toxic still, and therefore their ability to expand um, or to build more plants um, is not going to happen because of EPA regulatory environment. So we really needed to focus on these three things. Can we make it price competitive with the largest supplier? Is the process continuous? And can we supply on an ongoing basis the big industries? And do we meet uh, EPA regulatory environment? And that's what they really had to focus on. And that's what we proved concept on. And that's what we're building towards now with our pilot plant. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong. So you're saying that the, the supply side of the story isn't necessarily the issue it's it's, it's on the demands demand side that you're seeing the opportunity is any part of this about uh, not around these sort of nationalism or national security component that the u.s because we see this in a few other commodities where the u.s uh, lobbyists are talking about national security and being in control of their own destiny as it were is that part of this or is this just just a case of you think that people are looking for a greener story and you're going to be able to deliver it i think now more than ever and 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 things like covid has brought to light the fact that we must control our own resource our own production manufacturing those are things that have come to light recently now one of the things that happened in the 1990s when the chinese came in the u.s government did not move fast enough to put up tariffs to protect the industry that has changed. So there's a 114% tariff that's been placed on every producer around the world for magnesium coming into the United States. And now we have that in place. Under this administration, there's Executive Order 31817, which has um, um, made magnesium metal a national security interest and put it on the 32 most protected metals list. Mm -hmm. So clearly the government in the US is moving towards control again of this resource because they're realizing that lightweight materials are, are the future. And if you're talking about other countries that can produce magnesium metal, if they can infuse that magnesium metal in their car, in their cars, in their airplanes, 
how is the U.S. going to be competitive? If you can buy a car from China that's made with magnesium metal in their components and it can go longer with the same amount of fuel and it's lightweight, why would anybody buy a Ford, a GM, or a Chrysler? And the issues that we have here are really problematic. I've never been involved in a company before where the demand for the product was so high. Usually when you create, um, a, you know, when you have a business, you have a new product, a technology or a service that you're trying to pitch to other comparable companies that are out there. In this case, the demand, you're trying to create that market. For us, the market is already there and it's vast. To give you an idea of this, if you look at the um, auto industry in the United States, for cars made in the U.S., for U.S. citizens alone, they require 10 million metric tons of metal if they want to, if they get their wish list and replace everything that they would like uh, in their cars with magnesium metal. So the problem that we have today is the demand just in the auto industry alone is 10 million metric tons, but there's only 1 million metric tons being produced worldwide. If you look at the aviation aerospace uh, industry, they're looking at 15 million metric tons. If you're looking at environmental technology, for example, like batteries, car batteries, you're looking at 2 million metric tons. The military is estimating about 10 million metric tons. So you've got about 37, anywhere between 25 and 37 million metric tons of demand in the US alone, if they can get their wish list in place. Yet again, there's only 1 million metric tons being produced worldwide. Okay, I understand some, some more of the macro now. Thanks, thanks for going through that. But again, it's not a commodity that most people pay much attention to because it's so small, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to draw in some parallels to help me get so we get comfortable of whether this is an investment class that I should be looking at. So, you know, I, I think of battery uh, metals, you know, such as uh, nickel, uh, cobalt, etc., for varying reasons. And we'll just stick with the automotive sector at the moment. People are looking to be able to trace back, whether it be their, their green or their ESG credentials, the whole way back along that food chain, right? And I'm sensing from you, there's obviously, because of the toxicity of this, there is that element to what you're doing as well. People want to be able to track back the green credentials. So do you mind if we just talk about that in a second? So uh, We'll talk about it now, rather. You're saying that you're at or near sort of zero emissions. I mean, just get into the detail of that. I mean, how green is it? Well, on, on the waste on the waste side, we have two waste products. The first waste product is pure CO2, which we would capture and resell to pharmaceuticals and companies like Coca-Cola. So the idea is to sell as a vertical and to get rid of that of that waste. Number two, is dical. Dical is an inert material. It's a waste product. It's rich in magnesium and we can't extract that magnesium. It's too small to extract. But dical can be sold as an as an additive to fertilizer to help plants grow. It can be added to uh, feed for animals, pigs and cows. You can make decorative bricks out of it. So you can develop multiple verticals out of that waste and again, that would remove that waste from that plant because it's reusable. And, and, and the income that we'd get would obviously be driving back into the production and, and lowering the cost of, of magnesium production. So on the waste side, those are two waste components that we have with our technology. On our, on our toxicity side, 
where we measure toxicity here because we don't use the same process that other producers use, which is really old processes that are batch um, varying degrees of toxicity, but it's still batch process. Our process is continuous. Where we look at toxicity, for example, is heat. Uh, obviously, we're, we're, we need heat to break down the materials to extract the magnesium metal, but the idea is to capture that heat lower the cost of, of electricity. For example, if we're using electricity, um, we'll be using a combination of electricity, natural gas. Um, but when you look at heat recapture, that's what we still define as toxicity. We'd be recapturing it and, and using it back in to lower our overall demand for power and, and usage. Okay, that, that's interesting. I, the fact that Dical and CO2, you'll be able to sell, you're not gonna have to pay people to take that away. Inter interesting. Um, and the toxicity, it's it's not negligible, but it's it, it's it's uh, it's much better than anything else that's going out there. I mean, what, what, how do you measure yourself against the existing processes? Um, it's night and day. I mean, with with our technology, and again, it's protected IP, but it's a continuous process. And when you have a continuous process, there's less opportunity for toxicity. Uh, in the process. So we're able to really, the, the batch process that exists today. So for example, the Chinese use a process called the pigeon process. These processes processes are very old. You know, you're talking about, there hasn't been a new development in technology in 50 years. The last plant built in the United States was built in, in the 1970s and shuttered in the year 2000. So their old technology and and the the process of producing magnesium metal with that old technology um, has obviously toxicity. Our process, and again, I'm limited with what I can say in regards to our process, except to say that it is a continuous process and the materials that we're using and how we separate those materials in meaning the the dolomite from the magnesium the magnesium metal from the dolomite, has less toxicity in it. In fact, close to zero toxicity. So we have to drill down and measure what we believe is toxicity. And for example, heat recovery is one of them. Okay, so I hope you've got a better name than uh, pigeon process for yours. Um, can we talk about some numbers, uh, if you don't mind? So la first half of last year, so a, a huge jump in, in the uh, share price and the market cap. What happened then? Well, the, okay, so that's a that's a, an interesting question, and and you know, for me, the jump in the market cap, you know, it's interesting when you said there's not a lot of knowledge out there or not a lot of awareness uh, in regards to magnesium metal. In fact, if you go out onto the street and say, "What do you think of magnesium?" They'll tell you, "Well, I think it's great for my arthritis. I, <laughs> I take it every day," and some people might think we're talking about mag wheels. But the public, especially institutional financiers, aren't really aware of magnesium metal or the benefits of magnesium metal. I mean, if we're talking to industry people, metallurgical people, people who are familiar with metals, they can tell you all day long what, what the benefits are, but the public in general is not aware. And so when I became CEO, and I became CEO for the purposes of taking it from an R&D state into a production state, I had to really take a step back in that phase one. 
And in taking a step back, I had to really look at this and say, okay, we can't, yes, we have a technology. Yes, we can, we can sit down with financiers and talk about our technology, what it can do. But I felt that we needed to stay, take a step back, that we weren't ready yet to speak to the financiers because we felt that the best way of approaching this was to first build a corporate structure that they can relate to. And so in phase one, we brought in an operational management team. And I think the market reacted well to that. And, and you saw that with the market cap and the share price. And people finally said, okay, we've got people on board that can take it into an operational state, not just scientists and engineers. And the difference here, and this is important for me, you know, when you're sitting and dealing with scientists and engineers, they're dreamers. They're constantly wanting to build the city on the hill. An operational team, and for myself, we just want to build a highway that gets us to the hill, and then we'll worry about subdividing and, and figuring out what's going to happen afterwards. But we had to really build that road first, and corporate side was very important to us. So we brought in this management team. Second part of it, we really had to navigate through the dark waters of dealing with big industries like the auto industry, aerospace industry, military, and U.S. government. So we had to have external subject matter experts, guys that could guide us through that process. And that comes down to your banks, for example, and other services. Bank in Canada is Royal Bank of Canada. In the United States, it's Bank of America Corporate. We have three law firms in Canada, three law firms in the United States that are pretty big law firms that can help us navigate through those waters. We brought on one of the largest PR firms, Gregory, and they can guide us through the process of getting our message out there and the articulation of what we're trying to do. Because again, when you're dealing with science, in my opinion, you don't start out by talking about the science. You start out by talking, by bringing awareness to, to what the benefits are. Why do we need this metal? And then drill down into the science when people start focusing on it. And so we gathered an external team. And I think, again, the market reacted to the fact that we now had external and internal expertise that was working very well together. Um, and I also thought it was important for us to build our own internal IR team. David Mellis, who's the head of our, our, our IR team, we've got, uh, we've got a team of six, half operating in Canada, half operating in the United States. And they really go out there and speak to our shareholders. They really go out there and they constantly answer questions and they're constantly communicating with the public to bring that awareness. So it has to be an internal effort as well. We just can't rely on people wanting to find out. We have to go out there, trench warfare, and tell them what we're about. And so we built in this internal mechanism. And finally, I re-domiciled the, the company to the United States. So we're a Delaware-based corporation. We're trading primarily on the TSXV for now, and we're trading on the OTCQB. And eventually, we are planning on, on trading on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. That's our goal moving forward and in phase two. However, we had to build these processes in place and that's what the market reacted to. And here's why. I think for now that we're ready to speak to institutional financiers as well, I think what everybody wants to know, look, I might not understand fully how this technology works because there aren't really comparables out there that we can talk about. And one of the things that's interesting is we're, I think the only publicly traded company in the world that deals with magnesium metal because we believe in transparency the majority of companies are secretive. They obviously don't want to talk about their toxicity or how much money they're making. So there's not a lot known about current magnesium producers. 
So for us being publicly traded, that transparency is there. And we felt, we felt strongly that financiers might not understand fully how the tech works because there aren't other comparables, but they would have confidence in our teams that we put together. Yeah, okay. In essence, you're building something new that's never been built before. That's great. That, uh, very robust answer and um, a robust thing to have done. Can we, how much money have you got in the bank at the moment? Well, we've got enough money in the bank at the moment to give us a pretty uh, good runway into our pilot plant build out. And again, the money that's been raised has not been brokered, has not been through institutional financiers. It's internal through our shareholders. And we have a lot of shareholders in the US and Canada. And therefore, we rely on those shareholders. I don't take money in or dilute our, our shareholders needlessly. So we have pretty strict uh, um, uh, guidelines when it comes to our budgets. We make sure that that we're very focused on our spend. Um, but but we've given ourselves a, a good we've given ourselves a good runway uh, to the next stage. Obviously, now we're ready to talk to institutional financiers because the build out is going to take more money than we have in the bank. But we feel that we're in a good position to talk to these financiers. Also, I just want to add, and this is important for me, one of the things I've learned over the years being a CEO is when to take money. It's, and that's why you want to give yourself a runway. You never want to be in a position where you're beholden to anybody and, and all of a sudden finding yourself having to take a deal. So we have enough money in the bank to give us that runway and to sit and negotiate properly and calmly with financiers that have a long-term view for what this thing's going to be. Right. So when, when does that when does that runway finish? I went. You know, you've, We've you've, got about a year. You got a, We've got about twelve months. So you've got funding and you've got enough cash right now to see through to the for another twelve months. This time next year. Okay. Fine. Um, is there any reason you won't tell me how much money that is? Well, I, I, I will keep that private for the moment, but to just let you know that we have enough in the bank for another 12 months. Okay, fine. The pilot plant, that, where, what stage is the pilot plant at? Well, the pilot plant right now, we're, we've started the process of design work on the pilot plant. We've uh, brought on some engineering firms that are, are um, obviously uh, putting the specs together for us and looking uh, at what's going to be needed, whether procurement for parts that we're going to need for the plant or whether it's the design work that is well underway. Um, and and to be honest with you, I we're hoping that the pilot plant will be up and running by the end of 2020 or first quarter of 2021. Right. And what are the, what is the purpose of the plant? And I'll just tell you, uh, for us, the pilot plant is all about data and analytics. What we want to do is be able to produce enough metal that we're going to send out to the big industries out there, auto, aerospace, so forth and so on. Yeah. They're going to be testing it, certifying it, and they're going to come back to us and let us know, do we want it in pellet form? Do we want it in bar form? Do we want it in molten form? How much do we want? And based on the analytics, the testing and the verifying with the different companies, we're able then to roll out a real good plan for building the commercialized plant that we are looking at. Great. Okay. And, and how much is this plant going to cost, do you think, to get it up and running? Well, the commercialized plant in totality will be about three to four hundred million dollars as a rollout. But the pilot plant. So again, technology is scalable. If we're talking about the commercialized plant, if you're talking about the pilot plant, mm. it's going to be about ten million dollars. Ten million bucks. Okay, that's great. 
So and I guess you're doing a bit of engineering work and design work around that now, and at some point you'll be able to you know, push the green button on that. You're then going to need to go to market to get that funded, and it's the usual process, as you've explained, of being able to produce enough for people to test um, your product and whether it matches their specifications too. So um, have you started conversations? Have you got a sense of you know um, who would be interested in this, given the demand side of the story we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, is that likely to be coming from the US itself? Absolutely. We feel that our real client base here is the US. I'm not really interested in selling to the world at this time. We're not looking at global. We're just looking at local. Okay. And there's enough demand that we wouldn't even be able to meet with, with our first plant anyway. The idea is to grow the industry because we really feel that this is a cornerstone business. It, we're a disruptive technology, a game changer. So you want to be careful about how you're growing your business. And you don't want to start thinking globally. You want to first start thinking locally. How are we going to address the needs of the different industries with the amount of uh, magnesium that we're producing? And I'll give you an example of that. Let's say we're producing 100,000 metric tons. Do you want to give 100,000 metric tons just to the auto industry? Our philosophy really is to give 20,000 metric tons to the auto industry, 20,000 metric tons to the aerospace, so forth and so on. You want to load balance the metal that's out there and grow the consumption of the metal in all industries at the same time. You might have a downturn in economics in one industry that won't affect us if we're load balancing with, with different industries taking our metal. That's how we have to be very strategic with it. I get that. So we are very U.S. focused. And, and to answer uh, your question fully, who, how would we engage? Who would we be engaging? Uh, to see that, all you have to do is go on to my LinkedIn. I've got probably about 400 followers, and, it's, and our PR firm handles even my communication at this point. But if you see the people that are following us, you're talking about big industries, whether it's Ford or Tesla or GM or Boeing or any of these guys, they're all interested. They're all waiting for us to, to give them the medal so they can certify it. So there isn't a shortage of conversation. It's just now the focus of getting this medal to them. Well, and, and getting it funded, because again, if I'm looking to other commodities, other industries who um, are, and other companies who are getting to the point where they need funding for the plant, the pilot plant, they're struggling to get that over the line. So I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to get out of you is what gives you the confidence? Have, are there conversations that you're having now, whether they be with strategic partners who may eventually be also off-takers of yours, or is it just straight institutional money because they can see the demand for this coming from the US? Well, for us, it's dealing straight with institutional investors. Uh, they're, they're, to be honest with you, we have different industries coming to us and saying, here, we'll give you some money and, and, and produce your pilot plant. We'd like to be involved. Again, we have to really be careful of what we're doing here. If you're going to grow this industry and have the metal available to everybody, you cannot be beholding to one sector. If the auto industry comes to you and says, here's $50 million, guess what? The auto industry is going to get your metal. Nobody else will. So you really want to be talking to institutional financiers that see the big picture. And that's what we're doing now. We're talking to them. They're seeing the big picture and they're understanding our rollout. They understand that, that yeah, there's low-hanging fruit, for example, with the auto industry. And we can sell everything that we're producing to the auto industry. That's not really building a cornerstone business, nor is it getting the magnesium metal out there 
amongst other industries. So from our conversations with institutional investors, they're seeing the big picture and they're seeing a roadmap for what we'd like to build. And so far, it's been very positive. That's very, that's very good. I, I, I appreciate the de-risked uh, approach to, you know, not being beholden to one sector. You know, as you say, it's fairly uh, cyclical and you don't want to be caught out in a down, downturn. Um, can I, with regards to the commercialized plants, obviously, once you've got through pilot plants and people um, have been able to taste the wares, as it were, and get a sense of you know what you're able to do, I'm sure orders, well, under normal, circum- normal circumstances should flow, and therefore funding for a three, four hundred million bucks commercialized plant should not be the problem. I, I, I don't think that's a problem at all. Um, what I would like to understand is, are you going to be able to do that economically? At what point do we start talking about the economics of the commercialized plant? And when do you start understanding whether you're going to make money? And if so, how much? Well, currently, based on the the work that we've done and the proving of concept, we believe that we're going to be very competitive and we believe that we're going to be environmentally friendly. So we wouldn't be going to the pilot plant stage unless we thought we can achieve those goals. But obviously, you know, um, there's a difference between building a pilot plant to some degree and building a big commercialized uh, plant. So we re- rely on the analytics that come out of the pilot plant. And so we wouldn't be having a full discussion on the economics until that pilot plant is built. And then we, we see where we, we can stand back and look at it and say, OK, here's where we really believe that we can be impactful in, in several areas. We feel very confident that we will be, but we still want to rely on those analytics. And our engineers and scientists do want to see that before making a final uh, um, determination. Fantastic. And uh, you've talked about shareholders earlier. Who, who are the big shareholders and how much does management hold? Well, we're less than 3% insider held. Um, so we have a lot of shareholders. Not one shareholder is specifically uh, in a controlling interest. Um, so we've got a variety of, of shareholders, both in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and again, that's through private placement and our, our, our IR team. Our volumes uh, on a daily basis, they're pretty good volumes. Obviously, COVID has is, is had an impact with volumes. I think a lot of people who invest with us on the long term are more concerned about other investments they've had and the markets going up and down. But we've held steady during this time period. And for a speculative company, if most people look at us as speculative, uh, we've held our own. And, and I'm proud of that. And I think that is because we're able to communicate to our shareholders all the time. Our office is open. Our phone lines are open. They can talk to our IR. They can, our shareholders can talk to me directly and get a sense of what's going on. And that constant communication has managed to keep our, our price where it is and our volumes uh, in, in good order. Okay. And so insiders less than 3%. Are you a big shareholder yourself? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a good shareholder. I I'm not one of the biggest shareholders, but I've got I've got pretty good shares in the company. Yes. Okay. Okay. So so what's so what's the what's the game plan really? And I know you've got 12 months runway, but you've got to get this pilot plant built soon because well, it's the key, isn't it? Absolutely. So we're in phase two of our development right now, and phase two is focused on three things. One, obviously, getting the pilot plant up and running. And again, we are focused on getting it up and running end of 2020, first quarter of 2021. And we feel pretty confident that we're gonna meet that timeline. Uh, Number two, we are identifying a plant site that we will be eventually moving to to build the commercialized reactor. We're currently negotiating with two sites, one on the West Coast, 
one um, one that is in Ohio. And um, right now we're focused on those two sites. There are great advantages in those two sites for us. We really like the areas that we're looking at and we feel that we'll be able to get one or two sites in the next six months as we roll out. And so we will have our future homes for where our technology is going to go. And finally, we are becoming S1 reporting. Now, most companies, you know, I've been, a lot of things that we do, a lot of people come up to me and go, why are you doing it now? What, what's the plan? But I plan on becoming S1 reporting. Now, most, most companies wait to strike a deal with a financier and part of it is, is to, to become S1 reporting. But we feel strongly that we should do it now even before we get into into um, uh, into financing with institutional financiers, because we want to be in control of our destiny. Right now, we've just finished doing U.S. GAAP, and we're handing that over to the law firm and accounting firm that will be responsible to get us S1 reporting, and we plan on becoming S1 reporting in the next six months. So that's part of phase two and what we're trying to roll out, and that will, of course that S1 reporting will lead us to strike a deal with a financier that sees where we're gonna be going onto a NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange eventually. So it's all part and parcel of, of what our rollout strategy is. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, Sam, thanks very much for the update. Uh, nice introduction to your company uh, and uh, obviously magnesium, uh, the little known magnesium, but hopefully will become a little bit more understood um, this year. Um, few things to achieve, few things to get over the line, maybe and well, hopefully a little bit of money to be raised for that plant um, and you know where you're going to be and hopefully you'll know where you're going to be based as well. That's, that's uh, some pretty big goals to go for. Stay in touch, let us know how you're getting on, you know, pick up that phone because we'd love to hear from you and um, see how things are going. Appreciate Absolutely. It. Well, listen, I thank you for taking the time, especially during this pandemic, uh, to talk to me and to, to find out about our company. And it's always a good thing for us to bring awareness to what we're trying to do. And I appreciate this venue to bring that awareness. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And in the meantime, stay safe, you and your family, and we'll chat soon. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.